It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, the very latest on a Times exclusive. Sir Jim Ratcliffe suggests he wants to buy Manchester United. We'll speak to Matt Dickinson and get the insight on the figures from Kieran Maguire of the Price of Football podcast. We'll also talk about Newcastle United and ask if they could be one of the big disruptors in the Premier League this season. We'll find out if Jesse Marsh is going to improve this year at Leeds United as they welcome Chelsea to Ellen Road this this weekend and we'll look ahead to Manchester United's game against Liverpool in the Premier League on Monday as well as asking you about the unluckiest managers in football this is the game Hello again, welcome back to the Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wizencroft alongside Gregor Robertson and Tom Clark today. But we have to begin with the latest huge story involving Manchester United. It is a Times exclusive, Sir Jim Ratcliffe, I want to buy Manchester United, which will be music to the ears of many Manchester United fans. But just how realistic is it? Uh, just a quick line from it. A spokesman for the Ineos billionaire confirms that Ratcliffe would welcome the chance to talk to the club's American American owners, the Glazer family. It's a story written by our very own Matt Dickinson, who after that long hiatus, it's now back-to-back podcasts for Matt. Hi, Matt. Morning. Tell me, what do we know? What have you uncovered from those in the know when it comes to Jim Ratcliffe? Well, I'd say it's the, it's the, the categoric confirmation um, from uh, from a spokesman that, yes, if, uh, if the Glazers are looking at... at um, bringing in uh, new partners, new cash, that he would definitely be um, interested in doing it. They basically made clear that, you know, if it was talks about a minority stake, he would definitely be interested. But, and I think this is sort of typical of the way that Ratcliffe works, that would need to be with a view to a full control at some stage. He's not a guy who's going to be a silent partner. He's not a guy who's just going to sit there and say, have some money and get back to me. He is someone who likes to run things, own things, control things. And I think that is the interesting dynamic. And that's why we can't assume what the Glazers are going to do next. There's another story out there that they're talking to private US private equity, which you know I can't imagine is going to delight the fans because obviously private equity wants its money back with, with interest at some stage. So the Glazers, I think, are going to have options you know that's the scale of Man United even when they're as rubbish as they, as they are at the moment even when the, the whole direction of travel of that club is downwards they attract big business and they attract very rich people looking to to get involved I think this is a massive fork in the road for the club because as I say they're heading the wrong way they're heading the wrong way fast and this is the opportunity for a reset but but will the Glazers make the right choices 
And also, is Sir Jim Ratcliffe the right choice? I mean, why? Why does he want to be involved with Manchester United? What are his motivations here? Well, I think we saw that, you know, the, the story in May about their Chelsea involvement. I think, you know, they own Nice Football Club and they've got involved in different sports projects over the last few years. That's partly a sort of professional interest in raising Ineos's profile and Ratcliffe used to call it the, you know, the, the biggest company you've never heard of and they want to be known now um, they've got you know sort of consumer brands as well so they're changing the profile of, of the company and there's also the fact that he is approaching 70 and um, he wants to enjoy that money you know that's his sport, sport is an interest for him he was a brought up in Manchester as a kid was in the new camp in in 1999 you know is a foot is is a football fan and he went for Chelsea because it was available and he's now gone for Man United in the hope that it's available and you know he's say he's you know we know he's he's got proper money behind him he's not you know he's not the type to mess about but you know the the onus having gone public now um the onus really I guess is on the Glazers to engage in the sort of talks that uh, they're willing to have. There is the point that I think comes across when it comes to this sort of takeover that um, those that are usually quite serious about it don't go public very early. Why do you think Sir Jim Ratcliffe is open to discussing this, open to, to having it out there? Is it the case that maybe it will be popular with the Manchester United fans? And so for his name to be out there, for that popularity to grow, for calls for him to take over the club in many ways to grow would be a big positive for him and Ineos in many ways. You're spot on. I mean, you can see, you know, that, that, that in that sense, there is sort of, you know, PR campaigning going on that, um, you know, they, they want. And I think we've seen it. I mean, I have to say, you know, I've been doing this job long enough, but I've not seen a reaction to a story sort of quite like this for, for a very long time. And that's, I think that's more than anything just revealed the, the craving of Man United fans to have something different. And, you know, I think by going public, by sort of get, putting some quotes out there, they've tapped into that. And I think, you know, they, we're dealing with the Glazers and this is the greatest unknown. You know, we're dealing with the most thick-hided sort of owners we've ever seen. You know, they have been, proved incredibly stubborn. They've proved incredibly resistant to any kind of sort of fan opinion. Now, are they going to listen to this one? And, you know, I think by going public, the Ratcliffe sort of camp will hope that this develops a sort of momentum of its own. And, and uh, you know, say if the Glazers have a choice of private equity from America or this option, that the momentum behind this makes it very difficult to ignore. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting one. As a Manchester United fan, um, you think you're, you're reaching sort of Mike Ashley levels of ownership with the Glazers. Anyone else will do for a lot of Manchester United fans. The feeling that they're leeching money from the club. We're going to come to the finances a little bit later on with, with Kieran Maguire, who's joining us shortly. But, you know, there is a sense that whoever comes in next has to be, I think for a, for a lot of Manchester United fans, they look at what's happened to other clubs and they feel like whoever owns Manchester United should be this person that, that just gives. You know, Manchester City, their owners just give. Roman Abramovich, when he was Chelsea owner, he just gave to the club, right? And it looks like if you look around Europe and Paris Saint-Germain and what's happened in Spain, I don't know where they seem to get the money from, but they always seem to find more money to pour into the club, to pour into wages, to pour into transfer fees. Whether from what you know of Sir Jim Ratcliffe, he is that kind of businessman. Well, I mean, the, the, the sort of remarkable thing about United is that you don't... <laughs> They don't need that type of owner. I mean, I think this is this is the, another of the, the sort of you know incredible things about the Glazer regime. I mean, you know, they they have spent a lot of money. They've taken 
you know, a, 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 an incredible amount out. I mean, you know, the, we saw those figures coming out this week that put it over a billion in dividends and, and uh, interest payments and so on. And they've also spent, you know, up there over the last five years with City and Liverpool. It's just the fact that it's been spent so appallingly badly. And this obviously this recent transfer window is exposing it yet again, just when we thought, oh, new manager, time for a reset. They make the same old woeful mistakes of bad decisions, mismanagement, no due diligence. And they've set another regime off to a wretched, wretched start. So, you know, United is a, you, you know, we, we're seeing how unique it is by the fact, you know, the reaction to it, the, the, this, say, scale of craving for new owners. But it's not as if the new owners have to come in and just basically start throwing, you know, their own money around. They basically have to stop taking money out. And most importantly, they have to get the right people at the top of the club making the right decisions to rebuild, rebuild the squad, to bring some sense of performance culture and performance excellence back because that's what that club's missing more than anything it's it's you know the sense of being the best at stuff again and when was the last time united appointed anyone at any level we would regard as you know outstanding as world class as as you know best in their field jim ratcliffe spokesman yesterday used the word reset uh, to me and i think that's that is what is needed at every level. We've seen it with the stadium even. You know, everyone knows that that stadium has been neglected. Everything at United has been neglected by complacency over the last 10 years. And um, that is why this is such a fascinating fork in the road. Unless different, you know, unless there is different decision-making, it's not, it's about money. Obviously, it's about money, but it's about much more than that. In your heart of hearts, Matt, scale of one to 10, how, how serious do you think Sir Jim Ratcliffe is about this? Uh, well, uh, you know, say it doesn't strike me as a guy who who sort of messes around. I think he's serious. Uh, you know, uh, I think the Chelsea bid obviously was left way too late. There's not that issue here now. You know, there's no sort of you know pressing sort of time deadline. Um, I think he's serious. I think ultimately it depends on how serious the Glazers are. Are they thinking we just want some cash to to, to sort of muddle through and keep their ownership? Or are they thinking actually, you know what, this is a, a a sort of you know pretty unique opportunity to escape with an awful lot of of, of money, even more money, to finally hold up their hands and say, you know, we've run this for a while, we're gonna take a fat load of profit out of it and and disappear. I mean, obviously the cries on Monday night will be very loudly that they should. I mean, I think Monday night is gonna be absolutely fascinating as a drama on on the pitch and off it. Yeah, absolutely it will. Matt, start making notes now for the next book on Manchester United, okay? <laughs> the Jim Ratcliffe era. Can I, am I allowed to get a quick plug in? I mean, obviously out and available in all good bookshops and online <laughs> retailers now, 1999. And if, uh, yeah, if, uh, if any, um, it's, not, it's not just for Man United fans, it's a study of sporting greatness. So, uh, but yes, it does seem quite good timing absolutely um, yeah 1999 Manchester United the treble and all that check it out it's out today Matt Dickinson thank you so much for joining us on the game podcast and there's more to come uh, on Manchester United immediately In fact, we can delve into it immediately because there's a bit of a podcast crossover today on the game. Uh, Kieran Maguire from the Price of Football podcast joins us. Hi, Kieran. Hi, how are we doing? Very, very well. Well, I'm a Manchester United fan, so maybe that's a bit of a lie. 
Although the news that Sir Jim Ratcliffe might come in has slightly buoyed me and a lot of Manchester United fans. The question is really where the Glazers would stand on all of this. Would they encourage new investment? Um, Matt tells us that Sir Jim Ratcliffe wouldn't just want a, you know, a minority share or just to give the Glazers a lot of money. He would eventually want a huge controlling interest. In fact, the controlling interest in Manchester United. Would the Glazers be open to that? I think the Glazers are willing to talk to anybody if the price is right. And certainly looking at the current share price of Manchester United, which is is still below where the club was when it listed on the stock exchange 10 years ago, we would have to be looking at a substantial increase in terms of the, uh, the present position. So Manchester United is currently worth around about £1.8 billion on the stock exchange. It's got a further £500 million worth of debt. So that takes us to 2.3. Realistically, you're going to have to double that figure at least in order to, to get the Glazers to be seriously interested. They feel that Manchester United is significantly undervalued, um, as do most analysts at present so they will be looking for a significant improvement on the current position yeah it's an interesting one isn't it because a lot of Manchester United fans would say well the infrastructure at the club obviously you mentioned the debt but there would need to be a new stadium for example if a new owner takes over certainly in the next 10 to 15 years if not significant infrastructure improvements the training ground too is, is some of that one of the reasons why maybe Manchester United are looking a little bit undervalued plus the on-pitch performance well, what the markets do when, when they're valuing shares, they, they focus on two things. First of all, future prospects of a company in an industry. So you know, if, if we were talking about a company such as Blockbuster 10 or 15 years ago, when streaming had just started, the, the markets would have said, it doesn't matter who's in charge. We can see the way that the, the, the wind is blowing and, and this company's unlikely to have very much value. And then there's the second issue, which is the market's assessment of management. Because for every Elon Musk, there's somebody that's been in charge of you know, a, a company perhaps such as you know, Nokia or a, a, an underperforming car company. They say, well, if we don't have confidence in, in management's ability to turn it round, then uh, we, we don't see that growth potential being utilised. So I think perhaps it is a bit of an indictment of, of where the markets perceive the, the current man, uh, management structure at Manchester United. But there's no reason that without a, a different philosophy and culture culture at the club, why uh, Manchester United could not be worth a huge amount more. How much do we think the owners hold Manchester United back? Every time there's a bad result, the Glazers are mentioned. There's a possibility of a big walkout at Old Trafford on Monday night over their ownership of the football club. Where, where do you look? You, you see owners up and down football. You analyse them. You analyse the accounts, Kieran. Where do you think the Glazers sit amongst the best and worst in football? I, I think if you take a look at any football club and you say, where is it performing? You, you have to look at various uh, stakeholders, various cluster groups. Manchester United have the, the second highest wage bill. They've got probably the first or the second highest uh, cost in terms of recruiting a squad in the Premier League. So it, it's not the, the investment in players in, in terms of monetary terms. Secondly, you can then look at the coaches. The fact that Manchester United have been through so many coaches over the course of the last nine years might suggest it. you can't put it at the, the feet of you know, Van Gaal or Ranić or any individual coach. So therefore, I think you've got to look at the culture of the club, which is set 
by the owners. And I think that's where accusations in respect of Manchester United could be laid. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a university teacher. If, if I was grading them, probably be a, a C minus. You know, quite quite a lot for effort in terms of yes, they have spent money, but in, in terms of achievement, having uh, having have that budget at their disposal, um, I think you would say it's been a significant under uh, uh, under return on the investment. Finally, I just wanted to ask you what your thoughts on Sir Jim Ratcliffe are, whether he would be a suitable person to own Manchester United in your view. You've obviously must have, I think, had a look at him when he was in for for Chelsea. You know, would he be a good owner of Manchester United? I, I think he would be a, a different owner. And remember, change isn't necessarily the same as improvement. But I think in terms of the positives that Jim Ratcliffe could bring, he doesn't need the money. You know, he's he's been incredibly successful. If you, if you take a look at where he is in terms of his age, I think he would be looking for more of an emotional return on any investment in creating a legacy in creating uh, a momentum for the club because he, he wants to be seen as somebody that can give back to to the city in which he was he was born and the club that he used to support when he was a lad. He's been very successful in his other businesses. If, if he has as an involvement with sport in, in both cycling and uh, his ownership of Nice. So he, he he's an intriguing uh, choice. I think he will want to get things done quickly and if he can change the decision-making and move Manchester United from where they presently are, which is sort of an analogue football club in a digital world in, in terms of sports science, in terms of recruitment, in terms of data analytics, then, then he could make a big impact on the club. You think they can catch up? with some of the spending at the other big clubs in the Premier League? Or is it, if Sir Jim Ratcliffe comes in, are we just talking about uh, a Manchester United, not necessarily of old, winning every trophy around and being that that huge club in European football, but just, you know, a confident Manchester United who could be in the Champions League more regularly, who could win the odd trophy here or there. You know, we, we how much would he have to spend to bring back an era of dominance? I think that's my question. Well, but the Glazers have spent around about 1.5 billion on players since Sir Alex retired. So, so the money is there. The sales revenues generated from those acquisitions are substantially below those of the peer group. So, I don't think it's necessarily spending it. It's spending it well uh, that uh, I think where Jim Ratcliffe could make a difference. Man- Manchester United have spent, you know, assuming that they sign at least one more player this winter, will have spent over 100 million pounds in each of the last seven or eight years. But uh, I think United fans might query the qualitative uh, impact of those signings as opposed to the quantitative it's it's not it's not how you spend it's not what you spend it's how you spend it that's critical the most beautiful way of calling a footballer rubbish thank you so much Kieran Maguire <laughs> uh, from the Price of Football podcast uh, for your insight and I'm sure we'll have more of that you can read more of it uh, in the Times very very soon as well appreciate you joining us on the game podcast and we will have more on Manchester United a little bit later on right at the end of the pod as we preview their next Premier League game and it's a huge one up against Liverpool stay with us Up next on the game, it's time to talk about Newcastle United, one of the most interesting stories in world football over the last year or so. 
The question for me is, are they set to become the big disruptors this season, like West Ham and Leicester in seasons gone by? Eddie Howe's side hosts Manchester City on Sunday. Big fixture with the possibility of sending a message to world football that Newcastle have truly arrived. A win over Forest, a goalless draw against Brighton uh, in their second match, a game that was largely controlled by the Seagulls. Very wasteful at times, but it's a positive start. Four points from two games for Newcastle United, and we certainly don't have the same worries for them that we had last season. Martin Hardy of the Times joins us, of course. What kind of season are you expecting from Newcastle United? Uh, I will sound a little bit like Eddie Howe here, whether it, whether it is evolution and not revolution. They'd, they'd need, need is possibly the wrong word, but they would like and the te- for the team to progress in the way that you suggest in there. They need to bring two players with an impact going forward. And they have tried to do that with Hugo Agatike and James Madison. And now are very um, heavily involved with Joe Pedro at Watford to increase the options they have. Everything is great in Tyneside at the minute. Life is rosy. Mike Ashley is gone. The new owners are here. The, the fans like the manager. The players like the manager. Everything is very, very rosy in the garden. They just are not quite as dangerous going forward as people have perhaps made out or perhaps those inside the club would like to be. So they need to be a bit more offensively strong and that is why they're looking to strengthen. So Sunday becomes a very big game in light of Nottingham Forest. They played well. They didn't play quite as brilliantly as people have made out against a newly promoted team with six new players um, and their first Premier League game in 23 years. Newcastle relied on a you know, a screamer from a centre-half and a very, very clever finish from Callum Wilson. There wasn't a goal against Brighton in which they perhaps were fortuitous to get a point. So Man City becomes um, a, an important game, but one where you'd be surprised, really, if they get anything out of it. It's what comes next is perhaps more defining that you've then got Wolves away and then you've got a really difficult game at Liverpool away and then Palace at home. So maybe it's at the end of that you're looking for what? Yeah, seven, seven, seven or eight points. But the, the, the progress is not going to be perhaps as quickly as people thought 10 months ago when um, the club was sold 80% to Saudi Arabia's PIF. It will take longer than people are expecting or people had thought at the time. Part of that is PIF. Part of that is because they don't want to be seen to be going down that route of just blowing money all over the place, having been taken over by rich owners. Well, that was going to be my next question, because you, you speak about the importance of the games coming up, but surely the most important thing is going to be this transfer window closing on Newcastle, because they do want to bring in more players. They do have the ability to bring in good players, um, players that improve their side. Tell us about the impact, if any, that Dan Ashworth is going to have on the transfers going forward. Whether you think Newcastle United will be able to get good business done, because I think that would change the outlook for a lot of football fans. Yeah, look, they, they, they like James Madison, they like Paqueta, the, the Brazilian teammate of uh, Gomeras, Bruno Gomeras. Um, we're now down the line with Joao Pedro. One of the things this summer has been um, the fitness of Callum Wilson and the fact that Eddie Howe thinks you are not going to find a better centre forward for Newcastle United at this point. So when scouts are saying, what about him? What about him? Um, Eddie Howe has just said, not as good as Callum, not as good as Callum. The last season Callum Wilson played under Eddie Howe at Bournemouth, he played 39 times. The last two seasons in Newcastle, it's been a bit injury um, ravaged. So if you get him fit and you know, I've spoken to Tony Casquino about this and um, 
he was kind of he will be the backup to Harry Kane at the World Cup if he stays fit. That's very difficult to buy a centre forward that will be better than him. What you need is a midfielder who's going to score goals and a wide player who can have an impact, and that's what they're trying to find. And the the, the system now, which has been in place since Dan Ashworth came in, you have scouts very very busy producing reports that goes to Steve Nixon the head of recruitment he then gives them to Dan Ashworth and Dan Ashworth then talks them through with Eddie Howe and Eddie Howe says I like him I don't like him they're trying at the same time to build the club slowly they want to buy young players that are hungry and can develop and in Jao Pedro you see a perfect example of that James Madison is 25 I think Paqueta might be around the same age as well so there is a, a certain band of players they're looking for they are not looking to sign players from for that club's one to six in the Premier League would buy because they probably can't get them they don't have the wage infrastructure yet the club hasn't really gone through the, the financial revolution that people thought it would go, go through because it has to in, increase its revenue streams to get there in the meantime what you can do is be clever and buy players that will push you on from that can maybe get you to top 10 to 8 which is where they are looking to develop this season Are you, are you surprised by the sort of minimum of fuss that, that Newcastle have been able to sign their players with because, you know, for me, for a lot of people looking on, this was meant to be the, the biggest pot of gold in world football. But they seem to have got the job done in terms of who they've brought in quite simply. And for the players that they've bid on, who they've been rejected, yeah, yeah. They, haven't, they haven't started any sagas, which I think is important too. No, no, they, they, <laughs> having grown up around Newcastle, it's remarkably drama-free at the minute, which is very unusual. And you, you have a lot of cohesion inside the building and Eddie Howe has worked very hard on that with all kinds of um, things that he's done with the players, whereby the first week he was in the job, he gave a, his life talk to them in the canteen and had slides and pictures of him growing up and got emotional about people he'd loved and lost. And from talking to players, they were like, wow, this, we were prepared to do anything for this player. And the players themselves have done that. So what you have inside there is a really strong unity. Eddie Howe sat down with the players last week and give them a, a talk on the history of Newcastle United. So what he wants is that the personality of the player is very important and they have to fit in. I, I know that's said as a cliche, but you can look at Manchester United and think, well, you just keep signing players off the top of your head. And that is a method for disaster, whereas Newcastle are trying to do something different. And the team spirit is very strong. The team spirit is perhaps making them a little bit better than they are actually man for man or pound for pound, which is why they are being very, very careful in who they bring in and all what's quite reassuring is all those stories of Neymar and whoever else of six months ago they're starting to disappear the one thing is Newcastle have still spent £160 million in two transfer winners and have a failed bid of £45 million for James Madison and a failed bid of £39 million for Hugo Agatiki and a failed bid of £20-plus million for Joao Pedro so you're still talking about a spend in two transfer windows that could exceed what 230 240 250 million quid so they're still spending they're just trying to be much more clever and build for the long term in the way they do it martin you've talked about the kind of desire for attacking signings still still to come in but you know flipping the conversation on its head slightly and looking at that back five in that last game pope trippier shah botman burn like that's a pretty solid back four i would say um, yes. I wanted to ask you in relation to some of the things you've said there about signing wisely, signing for the future. Sven Botman, what's been the early impression of him? Seems like quite a, both an astute signing and quite an exciting signing in terms of his stature, in terms of his potential as well. Well, we, we, we the try from in January, we did the story again in March in the Times, which was look, this is Eddie Howe's number one target. He thinks this is a great player. The level of scout on him was such that he can play, but physically he's very strong. 
the first 15, minute, 15 minutes of games, he's quite prepared to go along to keep the pressure off. I don't think I've ever, he was substitute for the first game of the season against Nottingham Forest. And there was a quite a show of faith from Eddie Howe and Dan Byrne for that game. He came on with a couple of minutes left and I don't think I've seen a reception for a central defender in Newcastle quite like that before. <laughs> Maybe it's for Philippe Albert many years ago, but um, people were giving him a stand and ovation when the bloke came on the pitch and he touched the ball about five times in his penalty. <laughs> Each time got cheered uh, widely. So there is an interesting dilemma in there, which is that um, you, if Matt Target is fit, then you have the choice between which left-sided defender do you start with, Dan Byrne or uh, Sven Botman, and that will be it headache that Eddie Howe would like to have but it will be interesting to see what he does because Dan Byrne has been very very good since he came in and there is a certain loyalty from Eddie Howe towards the players Botman long term will be Newcastle's left side as central defender it, it, it's also interesting you're right I think Eddie Howe has built the team from the back which is not necessarily the way he did it uh, previously but new goalkeeper new right back two new centre halves and a new left back whereas when the takeover happened everybody was kind of talking about they will sign these incredible forward players he's made them very robust and very strong at the back and they don't leak goals which obviously gives you a platform for success uh, Botman, Botman will be uh, I think going to be a very good player for Newcastle but it's still very very early it's interesting that in there is I, I feel there's a little bit of an increased physicality to the Premier League this season Newcastle have bought a 6 foot 6 inch goalkeeper six foot seven inch centre half in Dan Byrne in January Joe Linton is a more influential player now and he's six foot three Sven Botman um, was rather miffed on his first day in Newcastle to find the club had listed him at six foot three and insisted they change that to six foot four <laughs> so, so you're looking at a much more powerful team but they, they need to add a little bit of flair going forward if you look at the team from the last from the two games of this season bar Bruno Gomez, the front five were all available pre-takeover and that's a bit of a surprise and I think that's one thing as a without contradict myself the, it is very happy clappy in the northeast at the minute but there is a bit of a kind of we like some forwards being signed from the supporters in the last couple of days um, but they will push hard to do that before the end of January and uh, Eddie Howe has kind of said he's a little bit disappointed they haven't done that yet but understands why Martin I wanted to ask you about one other uh, summer arrival it's not not a sexy signing but um, Darren Neal's a CEO um, yeah. because he's interesting in fact you know in, in yeah. terms of his background and uh, he basically built uh, Atlanta United in, in the yeah. MLS so it, it, and it kind of feels like this is a clean slate for Newcastle Newcastle's a club that's been as you know very well stripped back to the bare bones I'm yeah. sure he's got a lot a lot on his uh, on his plate and he's got to as you said build revenues for, for Newcastle to be, able, to be able to compete a bit more in the transfer market so you know he's, he's a very important appointment isn't he? The first night of conversation with senior officials with Newcastle after the takeover was kind of they were saying we'll, we'll pick the rotten fruit and I said there is a lot of rotten fruit <laughs> you don't really understand yet that you've bought a brand name and not much else. So you're completely right. It's a no. It's a it's a clean slate because the ground was built in two thousand. Sorry, the ground was rebuilt in two thousand. The corporate facilities are out of date to compete with Manchester City. The training ground is out of date to compete with Manchester City. Eddie Howe got a surprise of that. The academy needs a lot of work doing on it in terms of personnel and the physicality of the building. There is so much to be done. The income, the commercial income, when that. Mike Ashley bought the club in 2007 was just over 20 million 
20 about 20 between 20 and 25 million pounds and when he left 14 years later it was around the same level so that le- that side of the club has just become dormant and neglected and it was interesting that when Ashley took over Manchester City's commercial income was very similar and now that is over 270 million so you have such scope for Darren Eels to come in and um, develop the club but at the same time which is which perhaps links back to the team there is a lot to be done and therefore you cannot just put your foot in the accelerator because the club isn't ready to move that fast it needs a, a, a complete overhaul and a, a, a structure put in place internally the bodies inside the club were, were down to the bare bones since the takeover there was a review of staff salary most staff hadn't had a rise for 10 years of any sort and that you know in line with um Others in the game, there's been between 20 and 25% rises for staff. So there is an incredible amount to do inside the club in terms of developing it and moving it forward. And Darren Eel has they, they took the time to appoint the chief executive. They now have a chief executive with experience of running a football club, which they didn't have necessarily before, kind of Lee Charney learned on the, on the job. They've never had a director of football. They now have a structure. The, the scouts are busier than they've ever been. Um, the training ground is a building site in the short term while they develop things like hydrotherapy pools player rooms um, the pitches are being developed so there is a lot of work being done but there is still an absolute load to be done and Neil as you said Gregor will become very very important in that Martin Hardy thank you for joining us on the game podcast everything you need to know about Newcastle United appreciate it cheers thanks chaps so how do we think it's going to go at this weekend uh, Newcastle United I, I, look it would be a massive story if they beat Manchester City I don't know if we call it a sports washing derby <laughs> one of the Premier League's few but it is what it is at this point in time right Newcastle this game in a couple of seasons time few seasons time is going to be a title decider maybe probably <laughs> maybe good chance who knows in a couple of seasons time Pep might have left City and they'll have gone into free fall who knows mm. <laughs> who knows Look, I'm trying to. I'm, 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 I'm trying. I'm trying. All right. Someone's got to try. Um, well, part of the reason I asked Martin about Sven Botman is that I'm re- I really hope he plays. As much as I take Martin's points about Dan Byrne and loyalty and things, I want to see Botman go up against Erling Haaland. That would be a great yeah. clash. I think Martin raises an interesting point as well about the physicality of the Premier League. I think that could be a, a really good test and a, almost quite an old school test of two uh, two players, striker and centre half, buffeting up against each other yeah. to try and get some space. It's going to be a huge ass city. Have started so well, haven't they? I mean, I was thinking about this before today's podcast, and lots of the teams that we've discussed, and was looking at the table, and there they sit. You know, no goals conceded, goals scored, six points, happy days. Be a hell of an ass. But I think, I think, with some of the points we've raised about Newcastle in terms of their solidity, you know, Eddie Howe's teams of the past. I was just going to say that. Yeah. We're used, to, we're used to playing Man City and getting rolled over, weren't they? That was, that was. Yeah. The, that was well, we had know, this Eddie, whole, we had this whole conversation when he yeah. got the job. I remember it. The, you know, his defence's record, record yeah, was awful. Yeah. Is he going to be good enough to keep them in the league? And it's been a surprise yeah. to everyone that Amazing. this is, this has been the strongest part of their team. Um, and and you know, without he brought Shar back in really from the cold. Mm. That was a big move. Now they've got a you know a top class goalkeeper as well. Um, and Trippy was a big signing. So and Dan Burn has been, but they're not like flashy. Target too, yeah, yeah, yeah. They've just they've just been a good unit. So it'll be interesting. That that's that's going to be the story of the game, I think. Really, Newcastle's uh, solidity and whether it can stand up to Manchester City's might. I, I was saying this earlier in the week as well. This is a new Manchester City for me, with mm. Erling Haaland being a centre point of your attack. We don't know what the plan B is yet. 
Like yeah. if they're not scoring, if they're not playing well, if they're not clicking in that forward area, what's their plan B? Now I think it's going to be to just play how they played last just season when let, they had no let striker. Kev, let Kevin De Bruyne score. Yeah, goal. this is it. I like, just bring on Jack Grealish down the middle or Phil Foden down the middle and they'll play like the, the same false nine system. So now I think maybe bringing Haaland just gives them another dimension. But um, it'll be interesting, right? We don't know what a frustrated Manchester City looks like. I'm just waiting for a team who can frustrate them. And maybe Newcastle United this weekend can, can do that. Um, but yeah, like I say, I think because of the subplot here, I think if Newcastle United do get a victory, it will be it will be seen as, you know, like a changing of the guard. You yeah. know, Newcastle are here. So I'm just intrigued to see how they get on this weekend. Yeah, but I think as we as uh, we said in the preview show, I think for Newcastle and as Gregor and I have talked about in terms of Eddie Howe and his reputation in these games, if Newcastle lose 2-1, but show you know real competitive nature and are in the game and threaten City going forward as well, perhaps on the counter, perhaps with pressing, perhaps in the transitions in midfield, then that is progress. And that's the same with what they're looking at overall for the season, an incremental climb up the table. We'll see. We'll see what Newcastle United uh, do deliver. I'm still, I'm still keen on them being top six slash top eight side I think it's possible right I don't think the bar is that high I'm not just basing that on Newcastle United I think they can hit it but it'll be about those transfers I think over the next couple of weeks so we'll see if they can bring it in forward areas anyway Newcastle United against Manchester City will be one of the games that we discuss on Monday I am sure uh, coming up we'll be talking about Leeds United and their start to the season as well stay with us on the game but remember if you're enjoying it uh, rate us leave us a review make sure you're subscribed 
United have had a pretty positive start to the season, haven't they? Under Jesse Marsh, a win over Wolves on the opening day, two-all draw with Southampton, albeit giving away a two-goal lead in that game. I mean, nobody expected perfection from them, but many were worried about Marsh, um, about his ability, I think, to mould a consistent Premier League team. And I think so far, he's kind of dispelling that, isn't he? Season three back in the Premier League, if you like the tricky third season, all right? We love the first <laughs> When does two. that stop? When exactly. did you, you draw a lane under that? <laughs> Once you finish sixth, then you're safe for a good few seasons. That's the only time it stops. This is it. For me, I always say this about promoted teams, and Leeds United are a special case because they're a side that we would see as a traditional top-flight side. So... First five seasons for me are always a consolidation. If you make it through five years in the Premier League, that is incredible. You then, I think, start thinking about eight seasons. And after that, you get a good chance, particularly with the amount of money that you would have made during that, that period of time, to being seen as a, a pretty settled Premier League side. But we've seen in the past with other teams, West Ham, Crystal Palace, you know, even then... Bournemouth did five years there's no guarantees that you're going to be safe right and I think Leeds United their long term goal will be to be a top half side because it's Leeds but ultimately 16 years away from the Premier League means you've got to take things slowly and they loved Marcelo Bielsa he had a particular brand of football Sacking him was a huge decision for the club, had a big effect on the fans. Who's this guy, Jesse Marsh? Well, he's kept you in the Premier League. Hopefully they're now behind him. I like what Leeds are at the moment in that they're not too far away from what Bielsa did. They're just a little bit more pragmatic. And that so far this season looks like they're a pretty solid side. What do you think, Gregor? Yeah, I think that's fair to say they're a bit more pragmatic. But the one thing that kind of impresses me is that they're still got that identity about the energy and the running and mm. the kind of the press and the front foot football basically and I, if anything that's gone up a notch <laughs> like it's slightly less kind of visually striking in terms of like with with Leeds they were you know man marking players it was stuff that you just never really saw in football unless it was like kids football <laughs> um but Marsh is it's, they're still you know very narrow actually and and compact and vertical and everything they do, I think there's, you know, they're a bit kind of exposed on the on the wings, perhaps sometimes. But you know, because they play a pretty narrow front three behind a behind a sorry three behind a striker, um, and someone like Brendan Aronson Aronson is coming and can be like a hand and glove fit for that that kind of system. His energy and his pressing, and you know, a bit more industry than craft probably. But I think he's fit the team really well. He's probably been their standout recruit so far. So that, for me, that's it. They've got buy. He's got buy-in. Mm. Marsh is, you know, there's been Marsh came in, came from, came from, came from America. There was the odd joke made. You wonder whether the players are necessarily going to buy into what he's telling them to do. I was there on the the final day of last season um, at Brentford, and you know, it, it was by kind of skin of their teeth stuff. But you've seen in the first two games. you see what their intention is Mm. and you know that's clear and there's plenty of teams in the Premier League we don't even see that yeah well this is the thing I was about to say you know we look at and it's it's a big talking point isn't it especially when it comes to the big names in the Premier League but ultimately the planning of a football club having a strategy Leeds United you know Victor Orta got a lot of criticism for, for getting rid of Bielsa but what he did is he brought in Jesse Marsh from the RB stable of coaches if you like Ralph Rannick and all of that um, being an inspiration for, for Klopp's pressing etc a high intensity high energy style to come straight in off the back of Bielsa was a clever move 
and now the recruitment this summer, when you look at how many players they've brought in who have been coached in the RB style, you've played for one of the clubs, Christensen, Aronson, Adams. Okay, you've got people who've got either Eredivisie or Bundesliga experience in Sinistera and Rocca backing up the style of football with recruitment that fits. Now, that is something that a lot of football clubs could learn a lesson of. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, Leeds are a fascinating club in the sense of this kind of short narrative of their return to the Premier League. And Hugh, you alluded to it with sacking Bielsa. Um, and you guys have both talked about a kind of clear plan and the fact that, you know, we, we slag off football teams and their management and the way they're run. And this is a, it's early days, but this looks like a kind of very sensible example of forward planning. Um, but with Leeds, I think I, I I wanted to speak to a friend of mine who's a big Leeds fan. I was, um, goes to goes to loads of games, and uh, Rory was saying, you know, there's an excitement back now, and I think there was lots of nerves last season. Are we going to do it? But and I think that comes from seeing that kind of strategy. You've talked about those players there, Hugh, as well as them being from a certain type of league, fitting a certain style. They're also all all young. Aronson, mm. 21. Sinistera, 23. Tyler Adams, 23. Christensen, 24. Mark Rocker, 25. And they've all been signed for, yes, you know, a lot of money. But in modern football terms, 10 million, 11 million, 15 million, 20 million, 30 million. Like, that's that's chunky spending. And they brought in a fair old chunk of money as well, obviously, with Phillips and Richardson. Exactly. So. You, you know, if you're talking about using that money, that's why Rory's like, you know what, this is really exciting. And you've got players like, you know, he's went went to watch the games like Aronson's amazing yeah. and like to have lost players like Phillips for fans to be feeling like that I think that you know the the hierarchy deserves a lot of credit for that um, uh, one of the interesting things about Leeds United is what is a successful season for them you know we've got excitement here for me 17th you take it all day long I mentioned yeah, I, agree. The, I, I mentioned the five seasons of consolidation but as I said before this is Leeds United so what do you think the fans will be feeling about where they should be finishing this year I think you know going referring back to my friend Rory I think if they stay up but if there's that excitement there again because I think that's the difference when you talk about those two seasons under Bielsa the excitement they blew some teams away they were really impressive then you had the panic set in and oh my god are we not going to do it you, you know we had Rick Broadbent part of the time staff saying you know if we go down but we go down under Bielsa that's okay <laughs> I mean we should probably get Rick on in a few weeks to see whether he still agrees with that opinion but I think you're right Hugh finishing 17th but as long as those players the Adams the Aronsons are coming through and showing some excitement let's be honest there's, there's every potential Tyler Adams is someone I'm really excited about watching this season in the Premier League He's kind of one of those football manager, FIFA-style players that everyone's heard about, and it's like, finally, he's in the Premier League. They've signed him for £15 If he has an amazing season, or amazing two seasons, there's no reason why they can't turn a massive profit on him like they've done with Phillips. I I think a successful season has just not been in the conversation for relegation, not not having that anxiety throughout the season. Mm. I think because there was some serious anxiety at Ellen Road last season, and... I think they should be looking up a bit more than that. And I think they are, actually. I think as well, in terms of they've got some American investment, I think Rad Rizani's often talking about, you know, being open to, to more investment and possibly selling the club. Um, you know, I think Leeds are looking up, and I think they should be. There's still some holes in the team. You know, you know Bamford 
came off in the first half against uh, Southampton they need another striker without doubt because he's not he's not staying fit enough um, they need a left back uh, you know uh, Junior Fairpaw's out not for long but I, I don't think he's really yeah. been good enough since he's arrived either they need a left back I think Stroik played there at the weekend um, and I think they need a centre half as well so I think there's still some some areas of their team that definitely need strengthened but as as we've discussed they have they have a kind of overarching vision now. You, 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 the Premier League is interesting, right? Because actually we're in this sort of eye of the storm moment where at the start of the transfer window, a lot of teams went, got their business done early, five good signings for Leeds United who fit, they've had the pre-season, started the season well. You'd now see them as one of the clubs who can pick up the loans right at the end of the window. Players who aren't going to play for the likes of, I don't know, a Chelsea or an Arsenal, you know, fringe players at big clubs who need a place to play. I think Leeds United have just enough money in in the bank to be able to pick up, and it's not just in this country, you know, it'll be around the Bundesliga, Eredivisie, might be Italy. You know, I think they can they can definitely plug those gaps it just might be quite late in the transfer window and that's the way they stop themselves from spending another 30-40 million pounds at this point in time but I do think there's a few clubs in the Premier League like that Um, I would just wish mine was one of them really (laughs) in that regard Um, interestingly I think when it comes to Leeds United like I said before 17th is fine solid team right now I would take I agree with you Gregor like a Southampton season where you have a good first half, you get yourself to like 32 points at, at you know, Christmas and you're like 11th or 12th and then you know in the next 19 games you'll get like the, the 10 points you need to finish 16th or 15th. You know, do you know what I mean? Mm. So, yeah. And in that way you don't really have the worry but you still lose a, a high number of games. You're just not chasing your tail at the end of the season. That would be okay, I think, if I was a Leeds United fan. Yeah, I think Gregor makes the best point of all it comes down to goals and Bamford fitness I think if they don't bring in another striker slash Bamford stays fit and scores goals I think that kind of 17th conversation could be realistic for them this season mm. if they get another goal scorer or if you know maybe Rodrigo's going to have a huge he season. started well he started yeah. very well Leeds fans are excited about him as well but he he could be the answer but that's a that's a big big ask I think for an attacking attacking midfielder forward type player they're a, they're a team that's that's going to create chances. They still create lots of chances. Yeah, I think they're top three for big chances created. Um, they've got a real, pretty high XG compared to most teams in the league, um, but they, they're still conceding lots of chances. Yeah. I think only Bournemouth, Forest, and Southampton have given up more chances. So, um, you know, there's. <laughs> I think it's yeah. still going to be kind of one of those. Leeds are still a club that could blow teams away could win 4-3 but it's not going to be dull and it's not going to be it's not going to be I think probably not going to be consistent enough yet either Do we give them any chance this weekend it's a great fixture for Leeds United fans Chelsea at home historically a bit of needle between the two teams but seeing what we saw from Chelsea last weekend do we give Leeds United any hope this weekend well it it's going to depend on whether we see that Chelsea again ultimately isn't it we all praise Chelsea uh, for that performance it's whether Chelsea can find that similar level of uh, skill, intensity, but it's a completely different prospect. You know, they they were coming into this game as the huge team who had somehow become the underdogs against Tottenham. Now they're going into this game and the roles are completely reversed. And I think at home it might suit Leeds. I, I'm, I'm really interested to see what Leeds can do. I think Chelsea will win, but I think Leeds could make it diff- difficult for them. 
Yeah, Ellen Road, I'll always give Leeds a chance. Absolutely. I, you know, it, it can be a cliche when people say things like that, but Ellen Road's pretty, it's pretty daunting as a place to go to. Have you played at Ellen Road? Do you know, as soon as I said that, I was just thinking back. <laughs> I think I was on the bench when Forrest, when I went there with Forrest uh, in the Championship. And yeah, I mean, I, I've been to Ellen Road many times and it is one of those places that manages to be, you know, big kind of... Uh, steep raking stands, mm. but still got the history and, and it's old and and you know not not a, not a typical modern arena, and they're the kind of places I loved I loved being. I, the most. I just wanted to know, like as a fullback going over to take a throw in and getting the ball off the crowd, what the worst thing you got called at Ellen Road was. But we'll have to save it. Uh, for <laughs> Nothing the... <laughs> compared to Millwall. <laughs> <laughs> right, big game this weekend. As I say, for both of those two teams, I think Chelsea need to win it um, just to bounce back from a game that they really should have won against. Tottenham Hotspur but I think Leeds United will have a positive season under Jesse Marsh and we'll come back to them uh, when we see what they can do towards the end of the transfer window like we will do I think with every club uh, in the Premier League uh, still more to come we'll be discussing a big Monday night game between two North West rivals Manchester United and Liverpool So there's a massive game to come on Monday night in the Premier League. Sees Manchester United hosting Liverpool at Old Trafford. The two old rivals, if you like, most successful clubs uh, in English football history. Um, But the question really for me, and we we, we heard about Manchester United a little bit earlier on, but I do think there is only one story in town really, and it's them at the moment. Eric Ten Hag has a decision to make going into this game. Okay, back to back. He's got lots of decisions to make, I'd argue. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but listen, he's a coach, ultimately. His decisions when it comes to the matches are why he was hired. And the question is really whether he sticks to his outlook on football, whether he sticks to his footballing philosophy and continues to try and keep Manchester United playing as they have tried to in the first couple of games highly unsuccessfully, or whether hosting a team who is far, far better in the shape of Liverpool, you are pragmatic. And I think, for me as a fan, I'm leaning towards the season is a write-off. Your job... (laughs) Two games. Your job job is to get Manchester United into the top six and maybe have a strong challenge in the Europa League. And to do so, you may have to be pragmatic here and play five at the back and change your footballing philosophy because... You ain't got the players, mate. You ain't got the players. And you're not going to have the players the way the club's recruiting right now. So stick or twist, Tom. I'm with you, Hugh. Back back three, I would say. I'd go three, four, one, two, I think. Something like that. But Because I just think, you know, we've talked about Martinez. I think him playing left side of a back three with Harry Maguire, essentially. I think that would help both of them. Um, the, the other thing to say about Ten Hag going into this game is that unlike the other two games, after that kind of start, your expectation levels are so low. It, I mean... If they get beat 4-0, they'll be like, oh, well, OK. No, 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 because mm. no, it's Liverpool. I know, but you, say Liverpool. you said this last time. You said this last season. We had this argument about Liverpool and Man City last season. It's not that. It's just the fans will take it so, so badly. I don't know whether they will. They will. They will. Yeah. Like, there's meant to be a walkout. There's all sorts of yeah, 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 on Monday night. The, I don't think the that's last about Ten Hag. Thing, yeah, but the last thing that Ten Hag can do is go and lose 5-0 to Liverpool while Fine. all that's going Fine. on around him. But I think, I think to come back to your point about... Um, the tactics I think that could be a sensible move I think something like 3-4-1-2 get Ericsson in a central area play Rashford and Sancho as split strikers just running in behind in behind those fullbacks I know it sounds fairly basic I know we've no, said no. it before I know they've done it before 
but but why not? Uh, my point about the kind of he's got nothing to lose thing, yes, of course he's got something to lose, but he's got nothing to lose tactically by changing it. Mm. Oh, well, I agree with you on that. I was going to come to Gregor next, but the only reason I pick up next, Gregor, is because I have virtually the same formation. In fact, the same formation, either a 3-5-2 or a 3-4-1-2. But I actually think Martinez, who all of the Dutch journos tell us was a really aggressive defensive midfielder when he played in that area. I know he's played centre-back a lot, but when he did play in midfield, loves a tackle, loves a bit of bite. You've got more than enough to play either Luke Shaw on the left side of a back three alongside maybe Varane and Maguire or Maguire and Lindelof. Luke Shaw on does the right hand the side. battle, doesn't he? Yeah, you've got Delot who can play, probably in my opinion, a better wing back than a full back. You've got Malasia, who you've just brought into the club, who's played for, for Holland as a wing back on that side and done well in international football. And I just think you try and plug the midfield with either Martinez and Fred or Martinez and Ericsson and just play on the counter. I think Crystal Palace showed you the vulnerability that Liverpool have if you just sit in Mm. and try and counter them I will take oh my lord I'm almost praying for (laughs) a horrible turgid boring golden straw it will be the result of the century as far as I'm concerned fine you've already said it if if it happens if it's nil-nil we're not talking about it next week because you've already said it well I'll take it one one quick question back to you then seeing as I've gone I'm dropping Ronaldo are you? No, I'd play with Ronaldo, Ren- Ronaldo and Rashford. Don't even put him on the bench. Leave him at home. Yeah. Why? Because he's disruptive, yeah. moody, and he's just something that, man, you don't need yeah. just now. But, but it's a bigger story if you leave him at home, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but it's... It doesn't but, matter. It's out, out, uh, out of the picture. Yeah, it doesn't He's out of sight, out of mind. Because I think well, if no, you then play him... No, come on. Well, he would hold be for on, 90 on, minutes. For out of sight, out of mind with Cristiano Ronaldo, that doesn't exist. But That's just absolute nonsense. But we saw... But it would be, it's, less, it's less in mind if he's sitting on the bench and the camera's panning into him every two minutes and you see his moody faces or you see him yeah, sitting it, looking it, like that. Listen, or you see him warming up and getting ironic cheers from the away fans. I think if you leave him up front in a two and you're playing on the counter-attack and you don't worry about making him press and you just keep the structure and you tell Rashford run the channels and you take him off maybe on the 60th minute and you bring on if Martial's back fit you bring on one of the other forwards Jaden Sancho you know you just keep him involved ultimately he's probably your best chance of getting a goal as well um, then I, I think it's okay to be perfectly honest what I didn't like and I kind of agreed with Gary, ne- Gary Neville on, on this I'll, I'll, I'll tell you I'll reveal all in a couple of weeks yeah. which for me was like firstly why on earth would you say that publicly secondly you're basically saying after the end of the transfer window I'll probably be gone and I'll tell you all exactly what's been happening at Manchester United I didn't like that yeah true I mean there's quite a bit of football manager from me and you Hugh I think if you let the uh, let the guy who played the game tell us no, what, I mean, what was going to happen tactically come look, on I, I, I totally understand why, you, why, you're, why you'd think to, to go basically five at the back I think it's almost as important just to play with a bit more pragmatism in whatever formation you're playing and stop putting Martinez. Martinez has taken more goal kicks than David De Gea and he's passed them all to David De Gea and then they're just inviting the most kind of (laughs) formidable pressing team in probably European football to come and steamroller them. And so if you think a team with rock bottom confidence is going to, you know, start playing it around on the edge of their own sixth yard box or try and play it out through the thirds and whatnot then you're, you're absolutely nuts and I know he, he, he did actually address that afterwards people were saying to him and you know journalists were asking him you know is this wise and he said well look I, I don't want him to do it all the time it's only when it's on but he's, he's clearly asked them to do it that's something they've worked on throughout pre-season that needs to go in the bin David De Gea can't do it 
and the rock the confidence is on the floor it's just that's you know an act of self-harm so that that to me is almost as important but do you just persevere with it like we saw arsenal concede a lot of ridiculous goals trying to play through teams and then we saw their game against manchester city like a year later when it had clearly clicked and they were playing through probably the, again one of the best pressing sides in world football um with ease you know and ultimately that was a game that they deserved probably deserve to win right against a side that got to Champions League final not too long ago so you know it, it's one of those where if you want them to do it in the long term you're gonna have to take the short term pain a lot of lot of players changed though didn't they at Arsenal we, you know we're looking at a piece this weekend about Arsenal and um, James in the office and Gary Jacob are working on the idea that you know from Arteta's first team if you look at the, that squad I mean, Google it. It's absolutely remarkable in terms of the changes that are made. And you've got a new manager in Ten Hag now. Greg has said it. Tony Cascarino said it at the weekend. There's a choice to be made on David De Gea. If he wants to play this way, he can't be the goalkeeper. Also, similarly, players like Harry Maguire, I think he's not bad with the ball at his feet, but in a kind of rampaging, running forward type way, not in terms of like, you know, he ain't he ain't a Merrick Laporte, let's be honest. Um, so there's a conversation to be had there. The persevering thing, as Gregor said, is kind of like shooting yourself in in the foot again for no reason. And you you might then end up with the scenario you've depicted here of 5-0, and that's the worst-case scenario. Yeah, it, look, if, if he wants to be here, if Eric Ten Hag wants to be around to see this, this his philosophy, you know, the vision of it come to life, then he needs to, I think, change it in the short term. No, because, it, again, I, I hate to use Arsenal as an example because it's not like they've been winning the Premier League or anything like that. But Mikel Arteta probably would have been sacked on several occasions had the club not taken a long-term view, which was that he's a coach that we believe in. These are teething problems. We believe he will get there in the end and we're going to support him to do it. Like, as long as Manchester United are saying to Eric Ten Hag, look, if we finish 10th, if we finish 12th, you'll still be the manager. We will get rid of the players and we'll bring you the players that you want to be able to execute, you know, the, the style of play. That's our long-term goal. That is what's going to happen over the next three, four, five years. Don't worry about it. It, it. Obviously, you need to get that message across to the fans. You know, Arsenal had the whole trust the process thing. I mean, it was great PR. You know, Manchester United need their own because ultimately you need to be showing the fans that you're going somewhere. And I think a lot of fans would understand, you know, look, they're trying something here. A lot of fans I don't think would take just being really negative throughout the season because it got you a lot of one nils, two two one victories, and you ended up in the, in the top six, maybe in Europa League semi final or final. I, I don't think the fans would be pleased with that. I personally think horses for courses. Like you can try and play how you played against Brentford the game after Liverpool, but when you play Liverpool, let's be serious. Even if you were playing fluent football, there's a lot of good sides that change when they play against a team like Liverpool. So that's the only thing that I'd say. This week, yes. Games against Manchester City, games against Chelsea, yes, for this season. But against the lower teams in the league, go and try and play. That's all I'd say. But, but I mean, Liverpool, you have to be fair to United in a in a previewing sense in that Liverpool haven't exactly been starting the season uh, brilliantly in terms of performances, injuries, um, you know. And if you look at the team that started against Palace, if it's a similar-ish team, then you know, I'm hesitant to say United have got a chance. But but I mean, they should have a chance. Really, they should have a chance. If the, you know, if Ten Hag can come up with a system um, that nullifies Liverpool's strengths and tries to do what Palace did, which was get in behind, play quick balls uh, into the channels and behind that defence. Obviously, it might depend on whether Nat Phillips plays or not. 
you know, th- th- there's a chance there. I think, I mean, Gregor, what like what's your take on Liverpool at the start of the season? Because I think a lot of people, myself included, were like, they've made some great signings, they were so close last season, they're going to hit the ground running, two draws. Yeah, I mean, look at injuries, you can't, get, you can't shy away from that, they've played a big part. Um, but I was at the Fulham game on the opening day and they were... They were you know, Fulham's midfield ran all over them. Mm. Um, the thing with Man- with Manchester United, you just can't really see where. The, the problem is there's so many players almost like hiding in a shell. Mm. That's why I say they have to do something to start winning games so that the people that the confidence lifts a little bit. It doesn't really matter actually how they do it. They need to win games, mm. and then and then you can slowly, gradually try and return to what it is he wants them to be. Because if you've got like Sancho, Rashford. Maguire, Maguire is just like a shadow of what he was yeah, as well. You know, yeah. there's so many players that just look so inhibited. You need to do something to change that, and the best way to do it is win. Slash, do what Arsenal didn't sell them all. <laughs> well, I'm just look, saying, in fairness, I'm Arsenal saying. went through several stages in, yeah, in yeah. their sort of evolution, whether it be changing in formation, whatnot. You're, you know, although they had a Arteta had a vision, he had mm. what he wanted to do. There were times where they were boring. <laughs> there were times yeah, where yeah, they yeah, went yeah. to three at the back. There one were times nil to the Arsenal came back for a bit. Yeah, have and you, had... you know how I many? Whether they had two in midfield as a pivot or one, and whether yeah. they had three at the back, whatever. They, they did lots of. He tried lots of things to try because he knew that they had to win. Mm-hmm. He has to win. You have to win so many <laughs> to a certain extent. Yeah, you can be have lots of faith placed in you, but every manager knows you have to win, or else you won't get the chance to do what it is you want to do. Have you ever had that where you've been playing and the managers either tweak something, change something, and it stopped the rot? And you've been, you know, you've been going through a difficult yeah. patch. Put Robertson on the bench. And <laughs> <laughs> you took the words out of my mouth. That's putting me on the spot, to be fair. Um, no, do you know, like my instant. If I really wrapped my mind, I probably could find one. But my instant reaction is, it's damn hard to get out of these ruts. Yeah, it really is. Um, you need, you need a bit of good fortune. You need kind of ugly wins. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but like you do need to do that. It's like it's like a weight is lifted. And then when you enter, when you go into the next game, you you do so in a different sort of state of mind. And I think, I and then you start think, playing those passes, maybe that you wouldn't weren't playing yeah, before. Yeah, just a little bit more thinking, freedom. Oh, I'm a little bit more freedom because that that pressure has been lifted, and it, it can be put back on your shoulders again quite quickly. But it does it, winning a game lifts pressure, mm. and that's what United really need. Now. Wenger always said that it would take twenty games to turn a side with low confidence just into a team with confidence, and then another twenty team twenty games to turn a confident team into a winning team basically so you know more than a season basically yeah exactly and you remember on the preview show when I said I felt sorry for Eric Ten Hag I still feel sorry for (laughs) Eric Ten Hag (laughs) well the thing is Liverpool have issues of their own they haven't got a striker for this game Uh, they've got midfield injuries defensive injuries too we see who will play the game Um, but actually I I see this as a bit of an opportunity for Manchester United to to try and lift their season like I say even a boring draw against Liverpool I think will lift the whole place that's if anyone's still in the stadium <laughs> uh, to see it and listen if that happens if there's a mass walkout or a boycott at Old Trafford on Monday night my word we will be discussing that next Thursday but hopefully that boring nil-nil means we won't have to mention it like you said Tom uh, listen before we end uh, the game podcast um, Gregor you've had a word with Graham Alexander tell us what it was like meeting him and I'll explain in a few moments why in fact, you you might as well tell us why he you, you you count him as an unlucky manager. Yeah, I want to start from the outset and saying that uh, when I had you know I was 
I spoke to him yesterday. Went for a coffee and, had a, and there'll be an interview. Uh, hopefully today, if I get run up, <laughs> Tom. <laughs> um, he does not want in any way to be painted as a victim or anything like he's he actually what was really interesting to me was if anyone you know doesn't know who Graham Alexander is people will know him because he, he's someone who played till he was 40 mm-hmm. reached the Premier League with Burnley when he was 37 played over a thousand games made his Scotland debut at like 30 odd um, and then in management he's he's been sort of linked tarred with the brush of a manager who's taken jobs where they're kind of money bags so like Fleetwood Town was his first job rich <laughs> a very rich owner bigger budget than a lot of teams in the league he got them promoted from, from League 2 into League 1 um, Scunthorpe United this is another fairly small club they had a good budget at the time and he came within a whisker of getting them into the championship uh, I think he had the, the best win ratio in the last 60 years at that club and he was sacked when they were 5th and at Scunthorpe are now in the National League and a lot of fans look back to that moment and say you know, that was the turning point that was a big error his next job was Salford and we all know about Salford and who their owners are and I spoke to him some really interesting stuff to say about, about his time at that club but the same thing happened he got them promoted from the National League into League 2 and he was sacked when they were 5th and unbeaten after you know, only I think a handful of games at the start of the season um, so and he's just got he just he just left Motherwell, who he arrived with, he arrived with the team were joint bottom of the league, uh, steered them to safety. Next season, fifth place finish, finished in Europe, and they had a really bad uh, qualifier against Sligo Rovers at the start of the season. Fans turned, and he left by mutual consent. So I just looking back at his kind of all his all his departures and thinking. You know, we, we all know what management is like, and he knows it as well as anyone now. But he's been pretty unfortunate, I think, in terms Fifth of place at four teams. I mean, it, it, it's pretty unfortunate. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, uh, look. But as I say, I went down the line. He was saying, "Look, I know I'm not a victim." And, he, and what was really interesting is, he actually saw he saw himself that people were were associating him with what jo- you know. Although he said there's no easy jobs, but people think it's easy to get Fleetwood promoted to get Salford promoted because of the money he said I looked around and I wanted to have a job where it was stripped back and no one could ever accuse me of that Motherwell had a bottom four budget in, in the in the SPFL that's why he took the job he said I want to go somewhere where it's the exact opposite of what and he, and he achieved something there so uh, for me it's quite you know he's also you know really ambitious he's talking about how why he played until he was 40 why he reached the Premier League when he was 37 and it was like I found a way to win that was it he kept coming back to I found a way to when I was 30 I looked at players who were asking for a Monday off and you know you know, just to rest a little bit the manager would give them a bit of a bit of extra time in training or whatever he said I'm going to do the opposite I work harder and I work harder every single year and I, you know all those players in their 30 start to fall down as I went up the way and he says I'm, I'm convinced that you know I don't know I realise I'm not you know, perhaps the sexiest kind of <laughs> appointment, uh, but I find a way to win, and I can't dispute that. And I think it's interesting in the in this sort of era of, of, of as we're talking about, you know, all, all the time having clubs wanting almost all, all, often winning is not enough. It's mm. the way you win, and he's kind of saying, "No, look, I I always find a way to win. I'll find a way to do the job," and I I can't dispute that. And I think he's he's had an interesting career so far, despite being unlucky.
Yeah, yeah, and he's not the only unlucky manager out there. And look, I know he doesn't want to be tarred with that, as you mentioned, but I am going to do We're it. We're going to do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Tom, unlucky managers, any spring to mind? Well, so I've kind of taken it on the theme of like reputationally because I think that's part of what is fascinating about the Alexander case. As Gregor says, you know, you get tarred with that, oh, you only go to big clubs with money, and that is a thing. You know, we had it with Lincoln City when the Cowley brothers were in charge. We had a lot of, you know, backing in terms financially. We had an FA Cup run, and we kind of got, oh, they're just spending their way to the top. And like, it is bloody hard to get out of the conference and to get out of League Two. It is seriously, seriously difficult. You need to be so, so clever tactically. But they're not my nomination. So I'm thinking kind of reputationally, and one that popped into my head was Roberto Mancini. Just in terms of like not quite being seen at the level, perhaps in terms of his achievements. You know, I know obviously Italy failed to qualify for the uh, World Cup which is obviously a massive massive dint but won the Euros finally got Manchester City that Premier League title again oh you've got loads of money you did it really easily mm, that's a good point tough to beat that Manchester United side and he did it he got them to that level finally and the other one that popped into my head and this you know you might laugh at this Arsene Wenger reputationally in terms of what he did because of those end era at the Premier League, I'm getting scowled at here. <laughs> it's gone very quiet no, in the studio. You know, he was unlucky. He in was that unlu- sense, because then what happened afterwards, there was a lot of Arsenal fans, a good friend of mine is a massive Arsenal fan, and he wasn't Wenger out, but he was like, okay, time to go. Yeah. And then once he went, he was like, oh my God, the guy was a genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was unlucky in that they built a stadium, told everyone we're going to be up there competing with the best teams in Europe if we get this stadium. And then obviously had to put a decade-long pause on buying players of a really high level. Yeah. Like he just couldn't buy players anywhere near... No, you got to look at some of his teams. I mean, Dross. Yeah. I mean, he qualified for the Champions League with like Andre Santos and Danielson and like guys that just shouldn't be getting a team into the Champions League. He did it, so... I'll go, next next time, I promise I'll go back to my EFL roots. I know we've 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 launched into here with Graham Alexander, and I've come in with Mancini and Wenger. <laughs> I know, yeah. I know, yeah. I know it's more left, but that that counts as left field for me. Hugh, I think you've got an EFL manager to suggest. Nathan Jones for me, when he was at Stoke City, was pretty unlucky. Uh, he managed to turn them into a team that was having like dominating possession in most of their games, having a lot of chances in about 50% of their games and he just kept losing every week I'm not saying they would have been a team that was flying up the table but I think he was sacked when they were 23rd I completely understand why they sacked him but in terms of the coaching job that he did I thought it was pretty decent he just had a lot of ex-Premier League players who didn't really want to be there um I just think it was a bad situation for him to be in no way surprised by the success that he's had going back to Luton Town with a far smaller budget than he had at Stoke City with players who um, are perceived to be a, a, a lesser quality than the ones that he had at Stoke City. It just didn't click for him at that club. But I actually think the job that he did was nowhere near as bad as the results were when he was there if you see what I mean right it was just an unfortunate timing glad to see him doing well at this point in time but he's the first one that really sprung to mind although I'm sure there are millions and millions of others right every England manager for example the, yeah. the impossible job well, I was Graham Taylor say, I was going to say Gareth Southgate but I oh. thought you'd all laugh me out of, laugh me out <laughs> of the studio so I decided to leave it he's not unlucky though is he the worst of bad luck there's no bad luck when it comes to Southgate penalty shootout Kane squares that ball to Sterling against Croatia you know Small margins. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I learned from the women's Euros? Um, 
by the women winning the women's Euros, what I learned was it doesn't matter how you play in a final if you win. So Gareth Southgate got so much criticism because we lost the penalty shootout and we obviously lost the final to Italy over how he played. Suddenly the spotlight was on his substitutions more and how England play and they're too negative and all that stuff. But had they won that penalty shootout, not even the match, nobody would have cared. Nobody would have spoken about Rashford and Sancho's substitutions and how weird that was. No one would have cared. Because nobody cared how England, uh, the Lionesses, if you like, played in the final of the Euros because they won. And that's the only thing that matters in a final. I've, I've learned that now. So thank you. Thank you very much to uh, Serena Vigman for teaching me that. And hopefully she's uh, she spent some more time with Gareth Southgate um, before the World Cup because he needs to learn that, right? Uh, listen, if you've got some, send them in to us, right? Um, thank you for listening to The Game Podcast. More to come on Monday. Gregor, thank you so much. Tom, thank you. Uh, to Matt Dickinson, who joined us. Martin Hardy, Kira Maguire as well. Thank you all very, very much. Make sure you subscribe. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game we'll see you on Monday